I have a, a, something of a confession to make, and that's this, that I love looking round old churches. That's really sad, isn't it? But it is. When I pass an ancient church, I always want to go round and, and have a look inside. I, I find them fascinating time capsules brimming with local uh, and national fascinating pieces of history. But you can imagine the scenario on holiday, can't you? Dad wants to go and look round a church while the children want to do anything but. This year in France on holiday, we were near the cathedral where Cardinal Richelieu was first bishop. And so we duly trooped off there, only to find that the French Revolution had put paid to most items of interest. Even I didn't stay there long. But there's one snag with spending time in old churches, and that's this. After a while of looking around, you get the impression that Christian faith is all about ritual and religious ceremony. Because as you go around these churches, you're guided to all the things associated with the stuff that people do in church. So the font for baptism, the altar for communion, the pulpit for preaching, the lectern for reading, side chapel for praying, candles to be lit, organs to be played, pews to be endured. And so in your mind, Christian faith becomes synonymous with religious ritual taking place in a building. I remember going around a museum of world faiths in Glasgow a few years back, and each world faith was presented with each of them having a display cabinet in which were placed various religious objects. And so faith was seen as stuff that religious people did. But I want to kind of just throw that back at ourselves this morning and say and ask this question. Can Christian faith really be adequately expressed through looking at the religious ritual associated with it? Or is there a need to go deeper? And if there is, and we do, what will we find? Now that may be a question that actually is at the top of your mind this morning because you're exploring faith. You want to know what faith is all about. Perhaps you're weighing up what Christian faith involves. You've perhaps realised Christian faith is more than religious ritual done by people wearing funny clothes, and you're grateful for that, because that seems a mile away from your life. But you want to know what it's really about, and how it connects with you. It may be a question that's on your heart, because you're some way on in your journey of faith, and and, and when that's the case, it's not unusual, although it's always a shame, if faith becomes something slightly routine, a question of going to church, doing some jobs, saying the odd prayer... Perhaps not much more than that, though. And yet, we've got this desire to come close to faith. Perhaps that question is on your heart this morning. If you just listen to that passage that Felicity read out to us about circumcision, and you're thinking, what on earth has that got to do with Christian faith? Well, that question of ritual versus real faith is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our teaching series through the story of Abraham and Sons as told in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Just a reminder of the story so far. So far we've seen Abram, that's what he was called then, be called by God from basically nowhere to be both blessed and to be a blessing to the whole world. That was Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 15, which we looked at last night, we saw that promise of God filled out for Abram as he was promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that his descendants would fill the whole land. 
And God makes a covenant with some fairly gory details of the animals through which God himself passes to seal the promise that he makes. Well, today we're picking up the story in Genesis 17, if you like, is the, the third of the three set pieces of encounters that Abram has with God. And we're going to look at what this means together. Uh, There's a green batting order. Perhaps you keep your Bibles open if you've got them open. If not, turn with me to Genesis 17. It's on page 16. And you'll see from the batting order, I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. First of all, a covenant confirmed, verses 1 to 8. Secondly, a covenant to be kept, verses 9 to 14. And thirdly, a covenant sealed, verses 15 to 27. Okay. So first of all, a covenant confirmed, verses 1 to 8. Let's look at those first two verses of chapter 17 together. Let's look with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, on one level, this looks really straightforward because all God is doing is reminding Abraham of the promise he's already made twice before. Uh, Abraham received that promise some uh, a few years ago, but God is reminding him of the promise that even though he's still childless, he will one day have a great family. All perfectly understandable. But if you look actually what's happened in between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, commonly known as Genesis 16, you'll find that God's words here are actually quite remarkable. For in that chapter, Genesis 16, Abram's actually taken the matter into his own hands. He's so frustrated that he hasn't had a child of his own, he yields to his wife Sarai's invitation to sleep with her maidservant Hagar, and in due course Ishmael is born, though not before Sarai has made Hagar's life a misery. So Abraham has not exactly covered himself with faith-filled glory here. The remarkable thing is, though, that God does not walk away from Abram saying he's a dead loss, but he remains faithful to his promises and confirms his covenant with Abram. And we see this covenant has four characteristics. First of all, it's personal, because Abram receives a new name, verse 5. He receives the name Abraham, which means father of many. Uh, And so he now carries with him the prophetic hope that he will have a child. It's like a new start. Secondly, the covenant is generational. Abraham is promised that the blessing he has is not simply for him, but for his descendants too. Look with me at verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Thirdly, the covenant is spiritual. Abraham is promised in verse 7, he said, I will be your God. That, That promise is God's presence and God's relationship. And fourthly, the covenant is territorial. Verse 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And all this takes place within those first words of Abraham back in chapter 12, where God promised Abram that he would be blessed so that he would be a blessing to the whole world. It's the most extraordinary covenant for God to promise one man. An extraordinary vision of blessing for the whole world through the start of a new family. And it's all grace. It's all a gift of God. None of it is deserved or merited. Abraham has not earned this blessing. And it's all God. 
None of this is going to be possible without God's intervention. He will do what humans can't. Yet we have to ask, what does this covenant mean today? Does it mean, as some believe, that the state of Israel, as currently formed, has the right to occupy all the ancient land of Canaan, regardless of the constraints of international law? I don't think so for a whole number of reasons, but let me give you the most important, and that's this. This is not God's last word on his covenant with his people. Yes, it sets the trajectory for what is to come, but it is not the ultimate destination. That ultimate destination was Abraham's greater son, Jesus Christ, through whom God made a new covenant with all who would receive it. And you see, that new covenant, that new agreement that God made through Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of all that Abraham's covenant had pointed towards. Let's look at those things again. It was personal. You see, God called Abram by name and gave him a new beginning. Jesus didn't call just one or two. He called everyone he met by name and gave them a new start. Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene. And he calls you and he calls me by name too. God may be God of the whole world, but his covenant is personal with you. It's no coincidence that in many parts of the world, when a person is baptized, they receive a new name. My friend Esther received that name when, as an adult, she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A new name, because it was a personal covenant. Secondly, the covenant Jesus offers is generational. Not in quite the same way as for Abraham, but actually rather more exciting. Because Jesus offers generational blessings at the same time. In Abraham, Abraham's time, it's, to me, it seems like the blessing would be kind of transferred as one person died. Jesus modeled a way in which children could be blessed at the same time as adults, young at the same time as old. Thirdly, the covenant Jesus offers is spiritual. Abraham was promised a relationship with God, and Jesus offers the same, only more so. And we'll explore a little bit more of that in a moment. And fourthly, the covenant Jesus offers is territorial. But in Jesus, the territory is not just the land of Canaan, but the whole world. There was a reason why the early Christians did not stay in Canaan, in Israel. They realized that in Jesus, God was doing a new thing and calling them to go to every land with the good news of Jesus. And when people came to Christ in Asia Minor or North Africa, they didn't say, brilliant, you've come to Christ, now you've really got to go to Israel because that's where God really is. No, they said, you can have the Holy Spirit so that wherever you are, that is God's territory. And you are God's presence. And so that territory of God's blessing is in the heart of every single believer. You see, I think it's really important that we are clear about the sort of covenant, the sort of agreement that God is actually offering us today. He is not offering on a universal basis what he promised to Abraham that day. A kind of big family, lots of land, success all the, all the way. What he promises us is what those promises pointed towards. What he promises us is Jesus Christ. When Archbishop Justin spoke on 
uh, Tuesday at Connections, he said something that really struck me. He said, the best thing about Jesus is not only the things he does for us, but the things he does with us. Yes, he gives us forgiveness and a new start. But best of all, Justin said, he sticks with us and walks with us through the times of greatest darkness as well as the times of deepest joy. Perhaps you're feeling disappointed with God this morning. You feel he hasn't kept his side of the bargain. Illness, relationships, money, they haven't worked out as you hoped. Can I encourage you this morning not to feel bitter about the things that God never promised in the first place? And look at what he has promised you. His son, Jesus Christ, to walk with you and one day to welcome you home. During communion, Richard will sing a a song for us, and, and the words for the song are really special. They just say, Alleluia, all I have is Christ. What a covenant that is. Jesus is God's confirmed covenant to you and me. That was better than anything Abraham could have dreamt of. All I have is Christ. A covenant confirmed. But alongside God's covenant with Abraham, he also asks something of Abraham too. And this is the second heading which I've called a covenant to be kept. Because that key phrase is there in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you... You can almost hear Abraham gulp at this point. You know, he's been given this amazing promise of being a blessing to the nations and receiving a great family. He's just about to hear what it's going to involve for him. It's kind of, we understand that's how contracts work, don't we? You know, both sides need to agree, and you better make sure you read the small print. Actually, what God asks of Abraham is very simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. He asks that Abraham circumcises himself and his household, and that's it. But we have to ask kind of what's going on here. This sounds just like ritual for the sake of it. But that key word is that word in verse 11. Look with me. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision is the sign. It's not the main thing. It's the sign to the main thing. But what is that? Well, the sign is of the covenant between me and you, as God puts it. It will be a physical reminder to Abraham and his descendants that God has made them some great promises. And bearing in mind that blessing is generational, it's somehow appropriate that the act of procreation will contain a reminder of that generational blessing. But the circumcision, it seems to me, is also a sign of Abraham's side of the deal. You see, the circumcision is not the main thing, it's what it represents. And what it represents is Abraham's acceptance and obedience in his heart to where God has called him. It's an outward sign that he'll obey God in his heart and, as verse 1 puts it, walk before God. It's like Abraham saying to God, I am yours. I will do what you are calling me to and I will put you first in my heart. Keeping the covenant, therefore, is not about just performing a ritual and that being it. Keeping the covenant 
is about opening your heart, putting God first, obeying his word, following his ways, of which circumcision is but a sign. That's why the Apostle Paul, writing later on in Romans, describes a circumcision of the heart as what's really going on. This shows God has never really been interested in religious ritual for ritual's sake. He's always been much more interested in the response of the human heart. Hence why in the time to come he was less worried about the sacrifices that were offered to him and more by the heart behind those sacrifices. Hence why Jesus spoke so harshly of the Pharisees who did lots of religious things, but had hearts closed to God. Hence why the early church in Acts chapter 15 decided that the Gentile believers did not need to be circumcised, a decision of which many of us are grateful for today. So to go back where we started this morning, looking at Christian faith from the perspective of external ritual is getting it all the wrong way around. It's not about the external stuff that we do. God is most concerned that our hearts are open to him, that they're open in love, in repentance and obedience. I'm not saying that what we do doesn't matter. God calls us to be faithful in how we serve and witness to him in the world, how we are stewards of his creation, how we fight for justice, how we grow in holiness. God wants us to worship, to pray, to learn, to serve, but they are not the main thing. The main thing is that our hearts are open to God. If they are, that external stuff will follow. If they are not, that empty stuff, that external stuff, will become empty and good for no one. So can I ask you the question I have to ask myself often? Is your heart open to God? Do you repent regularly and ask God to purify your heart? Do you ask God to grow your love for him? Do you seek to obey God's will and God's word even when, as it was for Abraham, it was costly for you? Or or perhaps your heart is closed to God. Perhaps you can think you can strike a deal with him. I'll do this if you do that. You can't. Because God has already laid down the terms of his ridiculously generous covenant of grace and not works. And we'd be foolish not to accept. Perhaps you think that God can't welcome a heart like yours, so you're going to keep it closed. Because if you open it up, he won't want to let you in. He can. And he does. Today, the Pope is visiting a correctional facility, a prison, in Philadelphia. And in so doing, he's showing that the human heart is not one that is closed just because it's behind bars. But actually, a human heart can be opened at whatever point we find ourselves. The longer I walk as a Christian, the more I think it all comes down to where our hearts are with God. Are they open to him? Or are they closed? Perhaps you want to open your heart more to God. Here's something to try. This week, take time each day to pray the Lord's Prayer very slowly, sentence by sentence. 
taking time over each phrase and letting the meaning soak in. Because if you think about it, the Lord's Prayer has repentance, it has love, and it has obedience all the way in. Forgive us our sins, your will be done, our Father in heaven. And I just encourage you to pray that every day. Take time over doing it. And pray that as you do so, God will open your heart to him. You see, the response that Jesus wants, just like he wanted of Abraham that day, was not a ritual for the sake of it, coming to church. What he wants are hearts that are open. And when he finds hearts that are open, just like he did with Abraham, he can do wonderful things. Let's look briefly at the final section of the story. I've called it the covenant sealed. Because the truth is that while God is calling for Abraham's heart, his heart is not completely in the right place. He prevaricates Abraham once more and asks that Ishmael might be the son who inherits his blessing, his son by Hagar. But God has to promise again that Sarah will give birth to a son within the year. And so then Abraham takes the step. In verse 23, we read that Abraham takes Ishmael and all the males with him, and they are all circumcised. It would have been a very public sign of obedience to God's call and God's will. If you like, it's the sealing, the signing of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. It's Abraham kind of signing on the bottom line. Even if his faith is still growing, he has been obedient which shows an open and a willing heart. I think we might just pause and consider what was involved. I don't want to get too medical. Uh, but there are four aspects which I think we might want to remember because they are relevant to the story of which we are a part. Very briefly, it was painful, enough said. Secondly, it involved the spilling of blood. Thirdly, it involved separation, much as those birds had been separated in Genesis 15. And fourth, of course, it was permanent this was not just for a season. And you know, those four things of the covenant sealed that day, they make me think of another covenant. A covenant which was described as new and which was sealed not by the actions of many, but by the actions of one man on behalf of others, which was Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus suffered the pain of God's judgment so we don't have to. Jesus shed his blood so we could be made clean. Jesus was separated from his heavenly father so we can be joined in relationship. And Jesus died once for all so that death itself could be defeated forever and we might have eternal life. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was making a new covenant with the world. It was not one we earned any more than Abraham earned his. But it is one where our heart response matters more than anything else. Let me quote something else that Justin Welby said on Tuesday, speaking this time of the offer of life in Jesus Christ. All you need to do, he said, all you need to do is open your hearts to him. And he's absolutely right. Jesus has done it all for us. Like, was, like God was to do all for Abraham. And all we need to do is open our hearts and enter that space that God has made for us 
with a new permanent covenant in Jesus Christ. It is not an agreement we can earn or deserve. It will cost us nothing, but it will involve everything. You see, Christian faith in its essence is not about doing things to get closer to God. A kind of sort of seven habits of highly religious people. The good news of Christian faith is about an astonishing offer, a covenant, to use the proper word, that God offers to us. An offer made possible through the gift of Jesus Christ to the world and sealed in his precious blood. An offer to each one of us by name, young or old, for a relationship with God not in a special place or a special land, wherever we go. That's the offer. That's the covenant that God makes to each one of us. To take it up, to keep it, we have to open our hearts like Abraham did that day, struggling with both faith and doubt, but believing that God will not turn us away. And God will take our open hearts, our repentance, our love, and our obedience, and use us for his purposes, just like he did with Abraham all those many, many years ago. Let me pray.